the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. This podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. I am excited about launching season four of the show. And on this episode, I am joined by my wonderful friend and colleague, Tony Wynn from AAVMC. Hi, Tony. Hi, Lisa. Hi. So, Tony, tell us about yourselves. I could go on and on, but I'm going to let you do that. Thank you. I'm Tony Wynn. I'm the Director of Admissions and Recruitment Affairs at the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges. I'm the director of the Veterinary Medical College Application Service, VEMCAS, and I am liaison to the National Association of Advisors for the Health Professions and liaison to the Admissions and Recruitment Committee, international engagement, basically all things related to the pipeline coming into veterinary profession is where my fingers are. So, yes, Tony and I are good friends and colleagues. We hang out in the office a lot. We come up with all kinds of amazing projects that we never have time to do. (laughs) Some of them we have time to do, uh, but we work pretty closely together. So on this episode, Tony mentioned uh, recently that he gave a brief talk on Generation Z, which I guess is... So I think I'm an Xer. Then there were millennials. I think they're Ys <laughs> and other Zs. And Zs. Alpha. So we're going to talk about Generation Z. Is this the group that's applying now? Or are they coming? Or who are they? They're actually just starting to apply now. The oldest is about 23 years old. Our average applicant is about 24, 25. So they're just starting to apply now. Wow. Okay. So when does this group. So if the oldest is 20, 23, so kind of uh, would the youngest still be in high school? I guess they're still in high school. Yeah. The youngest, youngest would be around six years old right now. So that's oh. Oh. first second grade. Remember, a generation spans 15 years. So from 1995, which would be the youngest birth year up to 2012. Beyond 2012, we're looking at another generation called Generation Alpha. So we're just starting over. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> So the oldest, the oldest alpha is five years old right now. So they're not really on our radar. Right. Generation Zs are where we're really paying attention right now. All right. So tell us about Generation Z. How So they're, they're applying now. They are potentially current applicants. So what, what kinds of things should we know about Generation Z? So Generation Z is an interesting group in that this is really the first group that didn't know life before technology. So they have an interesting perspective in terms of how they do business, how they communicate, and their behaviors are are all very digital-based. And of course, they're looking for that in education, which we either meet the needs of or we don't. And that's part of the reason that I give these presentations around is to talk to advisors about how they're communicating with this new generation. There's, you know, what do we need to know other than the fact that they're digital natives? They're incredibly entrepreneurial. They are looking for, well, they're looking to make money, which is a good thing, but they are also uh, all over the web starting businesses and making money in in small ways. So they're already in business, which is a good thing for us 
back end. They are much more diverse than any other generation that we've seen, basically in the generation itself, but they're also incredibly highly diverse in their acceptance of diversity and, and inclusion. So this is a group that is spearheading, as you know, the, uh, the movement to increase the Vemcast application gender questions to expand more inclusiveness. They're at the forefront of, of almost demanding these changes as it, as it relates to diversity and inclusion, which is a great thing. Uh, yeah. And of course, yeah. we're meeting the needs as best we can. So it sounds like they're a bit, bit kind of activists too. Not that that's a bad thing. I think that that's a, it's a, it, and it tends to actually go kind of hand in hand with the entrepreneurial spirit. You're kind of pushing that envelope and trying to be creators, right? Not just creatives, but but creators. Absolutely, they they are are incredibly interested in, in fostering change, and they're and they're more vocal than prior generations in certain in certain aspects to that. And you're right, the the entrepreneurship embedded in this generation is driving some of that. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, So how is, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, educationally, we're seeing a new breed as well. We're seeing folks who value higher education a little bit more than we did in the past. They see the value of it because they're looking to, they realize that higher education is the way to get a good paying job. Hmm. Mm. So do they think of things though, and we talked a little bit about this earlier this week before the show, are they thinking job or are they thinking career? And I think that there's a generational piece around kind of job versus career, those job versus career conversations, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I think this generation thinks, you know, money equals job, career equals happiness. And mm. and that's the distinction that I haven't seen in the prior generation anyway. So yes, they're saying I've got I've to get a good education so that I can land that job which will lead me to that career that I've always wanted. Interesting. That makes sense. Yeah, sure. So how is this? I mean, this is kind of different from WISE, which I think it's it's interesting because we are still talking, folks are still talking about, oh, those darn millennials, right? And, and um, oh, millennials are changing everything. And it's interesting because I think the oldest millennial is now like 38. Like that ship is sailed. Like... Right. Youngest is 24, so we still have a respite okay. different generations right now. Sure. So we'll see the, the, the Ys, kind of the millennials fade out as the Zs fade in. Yeah. So, so well, wait a minute. So then where are, so are there Ys or is that Y, or is Y a, a hybrid kind of generation or do they not just not exist? The Ys, Ys do. They're 19, what are they? They're 1980 to 1994. So they're, they're, you know, 38 years old. Uh, the Generation Zs are the ones that are 23 years old, the, the oldest ones right now. So we're still seeing a little bit of that, of that, okay. uh, because the youngest Generation Y right now is only 24. Okay, so Ys are millennials. Uh, yes. Got it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the Z are I Gen, I Generation. That we're calling them. Okay. And All there's right. a whole bunch of other names that we call them, but but those are the two that are most prominent. Gen Z and iGen. iGen. Okay. So so how what does this mean then through the lens of the the Vimcast application as well as these are this is the generation that's now gonna be seated in vet school for the first time, I guess, this coming not this fall, but fall of 2019. Clearly they have very different native technology expectations. What does that mean for us old fogies? 
us all focus. What does it mean? To us? It means that we need to we need to learn to be a little more accepting and understanding of what type of, of applicant or student is going to be before us. What that means is taking a look at our methodologies, taking a look at our communication methods, and and you know meet the needs of of what this new generation is demanding. Frankly, they're not as inclined to to come to your office and, and fill out a sign-up sheet and sit down with you. They want to be able to do their own research. They want you to give them information on where to get that research and then leave them to do their thing. And we are just off a generation that is a little more hands-on and nurturing and, and they're special. They're all very special. The Gen Zs won't have any of that. Mm, interesting. As much, as much. Yeah. So we are seeing some of that in our applicant research where applicants are not going to see advisors, for example, at the same rate that they may have before. And part of it is they're saying that they have other means of getting the information that they're looking for about the colleges. They're online. They are very much into peer-driven information, which is not a bad thing, but it can be concerning because if your peers don't have the (laughs) appropriate information, then there's some challenges there, right? But they're, they're saying that they want information packaged in a very different way. And I do wonder what that means for the future of academic and pre-health and pre-vet advising. Care to comment on that? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I have a lot of comments about that. <laughs> um, I can tell you that the, the, the uh, advising community is, is doing their best to try and, and, and shift their methodologies to, to meet this. But a lot of the... A lot of the old school thought is, you know, if it's not broken, don't don't fix it. And and what we're trying to say is, well, we're not saying it's broken, but we're saying that it might need an update. Mm. So so some of those methods of advising uh, just don't work anymore. And as you just mentioned, our data show that folks aren't going to advisors anymore. So it has a it has a deep impact. Uh, and the dangers, as you mentioned, of peer advising are that they're they're being advised by folks who applied two or three years ago, and things are very different now. We have a whole new generation now. So things right. are, uh, so you can't expect the same answer. The other difference between Y and Z is in the Y generation, they would get information from us and then they would go check it against Google. In this new generation, they're already looking at Google and checking to see if, if what they're finding is correct. So it's kind of done a flip, uh-huh. which is interesting because, you know, someone calls me and says, hey, I'm interested in, uh, I have a question about the application. And I give them the answer and they say, well, that's not what I read online. So there's, there's a different dynamic here in, in mm-hmm. how they're getting information and using information. So it seems like they're kind of using the, the human interaction more to verify, <laughs> to yeah. see whether or not we're updating our website. So everybody web- update your website. <laughs> yeah. And that's dangerous for us because, <laughs> you know, that, that's, a, that's a different paradigm for us. Sure. Sure, sure. So what else should we know? What do you think about what kinds of expectations these students may have in class? I mean, I think that, that you know, certainly we're seeing a lot of changes in higher ed in general and the deployment of education in general. So we know that there's still a lot of technological evolution that's happening in the classroom. But the reality is for a lot of health professions, education, at least those first two years in the medical curriculum, is still very heavy. Sit your fanny in a seat <laughs> for eight hours. 
And it's very, you know, Socratic. It's very Plato. It's very like the teacher bestows information upon you through these, they would like to think, very technologically advanced PowerPoints. (laughs) Yeah. Some who are really jazzy might be using Prezi. (laughs) True. Uh, um, and certainly other folks are using things like videos. And I mean, we're certainly seeing a lot of really cool things being used in classrooms. But, you know, what are your thoughts on how this potential, it sounds like, I don't want to make culture clash always sound bad because I don't think that it is. But I do think that there's potentially a tension there that that will need some type of release. So two things, we, we tend to focus uh, when we talk about generational differences on the technology aspect, because it's such a brand new sort of feeder of the of the generations, and and while all those are important and it does have an, an educational impact, we know that Generation Z is less likely to sit for two hours in a lecture. Lectures don't work with them. They're looking for supplemental digital supplementals to their classwork. They're looking for classrooms that are module that can shift around, for instance, because it gives them a fresh a fresh mm-hmm. insight. They like to work in groups. So I think there were some studies out there, there's some literature out there that says that the Generation Z behavior when it comes to homework is to do it with friends via Skype. So yes, there is a technological aspect, but there's also a behavioral aspect in their communications. So, so that's one thing to consider. But what's really important, in my opinion, when it comes to the educational impact of Generation Z is who these people are and what their background is, is is becoming very different. They are, and I I have some stats in front of me, but they... Yeah, let's hear them. Yeah, in the last 16 years, the national population of children of color have grown by 26%. So we already talked about diversity. We know they're going to be more of a diverse pool. In the population, which is almost 50% of all U.S. kids, 25 are Hispanic, 25% are Hispanic, 14% Black, or African-American, 5% Asian, et cetera, they are more likely to come from high poverty areas. Mm. They're saying this statistic says that from 2000 to today, the likelihood that a child lives in a high poverty area has risen 44%. Oh, wow. So, you know, that's something that we need to keep in in consideration as we look into our methodologies of, of recruitment. And keeping an eye on diversity and inclusion as well. We want to make sure that they're at the table and they have an opportunity just like anyone else that might be more privileged or otherwise. So 13% of all kids, nearly 9.5 million children live in areas uh, concentrated poverty. So, yeah, I mean, the, what we're seeing is a lot more single family kids, less nuclear families. They are, are almost like the latch keys of the, of the Generation X. Mm-hmm. They're self-sufficient. They're they're kind of being left on their own, and that's probably why they've developed into this high research. I, I need to know. I need to find this out myself, kind of thing, because they do uh, yeah. in more ways than just education. Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess that cuts both ways. On the one hand, it sounds like one, they're incredibly collaborative, which I think is a skill set which will benefit them greatly and throughout their higher education and their professional careers, right? So there's that. I think that that this issue around poverty, though, is pretty concerning because we do have, you know, for, for our listeners, Tony and I 
do a lot of work in, in looking at our applicant pool and our student demographics. And, and we know that for the last couple of years, our applicant pool, about 30% of that pool come from low-income backgrounds. And roughly about the same amount are also first-generation applicants. There's a, a fair amount of overlap with those two demographics in addition to being individuals of color. And, and so when we look at those kinds of statistics, some of the concerns that we also, that are also raised in our data is that we know that those applicants have a very different kind of kind of applicant profile that may on its face without kind of peeling back a few layers look not quite as competitive as their higher income, better resourced peers. And we also know that that then feeds into a lower admissions rate, right? And so those individuals end up kind of in some ways getting pushed out of an opportunity to be a veterinarian, despite the fact that they have all of these incredible other kind of attributes that I think would be very beneficial to the profession. If, if you are end up being kind of what from my own background, kind of this this kid that's a hustler because you know that you're kind of scratching and grinding and you have to say, okay, I'm going to go look all of this stuff up. I'm going to verify that it's right by actually talking to that human, not first, but second, right? right? And I'm going to actually start an online business. I'm going to sell some t-shirts or whatever it is, and I'm going to finance this and I'm going to you know, just kind of be on the grind. How do we actually evaluate that kind of behavior in a meaningful way that shows that, yes, this person is capable of doing academic work at the biochemistry level and above, but they have all of these other really cool attributes that make them really on the path for long-term success? So we saw in the last couple of years of the admissions processes that our schools are responding slow, but, but they are responding in a lot of different ways. I remember a couple of years ago, uh, we did a, a word cloud of attributes of the perfect applicant. And the, the largest word on that word cloud was resilience. Mm. Uh, and, and that was interesting because every single word on there was a soft skill. It was all about communication, mm -hmm. all about you know being diverse and, and being open-minded and all these kind of things. So if that's what they were looking for in terms of their applicants, now they're starting to say, well, how do we bring those students into our pool? And, and what we're seeing in the last year or two now is some schools dropping the GRE, some schools um, tweaking their prereqs so that it's a little bit easier. They're really looking at what's going to make a good student. But now, this year and on, they're really looking at how do we foster in our pipeline good veterinarians? Yeah. rather than just good students. And that's a paradigm shift. That's something very different for them to, to, to use as an approach to their pool. So it's kind of murky and hard to see, but if you do peel it back, you do realize there's a lot of movement in making a, a more fair playing field for applicants. And holistic right. admissions, of course, is a hot topic. Sure, sure. So what do you see on the horizon as kind of responsive change in Vimcast? <laughs> to this group? <laughs> That's a great question. We're in the process right now of looking at next year's cycle, and I'm looking at the enhancements that are coming in, enhancement requests. You know, I'm a proponent for, for sweeping positive changes in the application and service itself. It's been a good 10 years since we've done a full scrub of every single question to make sure we're asking the right questions. And as we look more to holistic at the admissions level, 
we need to look at the same thing on the application level. Are we asking the right questions that are going to give us those attributes that we want for students that are going to make good veterinarians? So hopefully in the next year or two, we will see some massive movement in the application service to, to achieve those, those goals. Great. So, so like yeah, yet. go ahead. Not sure what they look like yet. <laughs> But they're on our radar, and I think it's important that we are, as, as an association, that we're responsive to the needs of, of the pipeline as well. So what do you want the applicants to know? We're about, what, five, six weeks out from the close of the current application cycle. They're in there. They're listening with bated <laughs> breath and everything that Mr. Wynn says. Oh, dear. No pressure. <laughs> You know, the, the, the most important things for applicants to know is that there really is a benefit to applying early. We have a process after applicants submit their application called transcript verification that takes a little bit of time. And you don't want to start a verification at the deadline. In order for us to do that, we need applications submitted earlier. There's a lot of buzz on all sorts of online forums about why they why are they asking us to do it you know, submit by the middle of August or or even the end of August when the deadline isn't until mid-September. The reality is if we find a problem during transcript verification after the deadline, there's very little chance of being able to fix it. Mm. So that's that's a key. The other thing I, I would tell applicants is stop stressing the experiences so much. Vet schools will work with you on, on your experiences. They're not going to ding an application if you happen to put an animal experience in veterinary experience. It's, it's not going to tank your application. So those are, the two, those are the two most important things. And I guess the last thing would be keep watching the status of your application for submission of transcripts and letters of recommendation. Just because you've submitted doesn't mean you're done. You need to keep an eye on it at all times. There's my tips. Awesome. So I'll I'll add a couple of my own just from the research perspective. I would definitely echo your comments on the experiential hours. I know that the colleges certainly look at them. We look at them and in the aggregate at AVMC. And I can tell you that I roll those numbers all together. So 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 when we're kind of looking very Bit broad scope, big picture of what's happening in the application process. My own guidance to applicants, please read the directions, read them, read them often, read them to in their entirety. Our data show that the more stressed the applicant, which typically is the applicant that is waited till the last minute, <laughs> the more time you actually spend reading the application. And that's because you're stressed. And that's because you know that you don't have enough time. Applicants actually spend probably three to four times as much time reading, app, reading the instructions to fill out the application um, in the week the application is due. We'd like to see people, we'd like to see those numbers kind of spread out. We'd like to see evidence that applicants are reading the instructions more in depth earlier (laughs) because it will reduce your stress level and it will also make sure that you get everything in on time and kind of reduce that stress and and all of that because we're for Wilma. That's a really good example of a change that we're looking at very closely because we know that the new generations are not as inclined to read a whole bunch of pages of text as opposed to shorter bulleted, here's really what you need to know and get rid of all the extra kind of blah, blah language. So hopefully this cycle and the cycle next will will be able to do that with the instructions. 
Yes. And also make sure that, and this is for this year's applicants as well as next year, make sure that you ask for your letters of recommendation early. We also have some really great data on kind of what that timeline looks like to get the best response. Typically, letters, uh, folks who are doing recommendations don't do them in July. But if you've asked them in like May, then they are pretty pretty solid to get that information in in August. But, you know, July is just not happening. But July is over. So now good, luck in, <laughs> good luck in God's feet. Now's the time. Yeah. So those are some of, I think, the uh, advice that we would give for current and future applicants. Any other kind of really interesting, broad stroke kind of commentary on Gen Z? You know, Gen Z is, is we're going to see what kind of an applicant they are. We're going to pay attention, I think, to the data that comes in. And, and when we do our research, our surveys and stuff, we're going to pay attention to the age of those responding to kind of see if there are shifts in trends. The reality is, I mean, we're, we work, we're working on putting a priority on the K through 12 demographic. So that means, you know, now that the Gen Zs are starting to apply, we need to look at Gen Alpha who are in, you know, first grade or so and, and figure out how, what they're, who they are going to be and how do we change again to work with them. Yeah. I think the broadest stroke I can give is just the fact that the association here has this all on their radar and can continually update our schools on what sort of, of uh, behaviors we may see coming down the pike is a really positive thing. In the lectures that I've given on this topic, a lot of the other health professions have it on their radar, but are not embedded as much as we are. Mm-hmm. And partly that's because we have a different demographic of applicant that knows they want to be a, a, a veterinarian at a very young age, where other health professions don't. So that's why it behooves us to be in the, in the generation alpha space. Great. One thing I'll also mention before we close is that as I'm sitting here thinking about this, I I think that for our veterinary professionals who are listening to the podcast or watching the show, I think that that in considering some of these characteristics and attributes of Gen Z, we're going to see changes in the way that practice evolves, right? I think that there's that this group will will really push for maybe advancements in telemedicine. They'll think about the ways, the collaborative ways that they think about practice very differently. I think that they will will absolutely continue to embrace the kind of entrepreneurial spirit that is really a deep characteristic of of veterinary medicine. And certainly one that our economists suggest is is key to being able to service the debt that our students take on in becoming DVMs. But I think that this group will probably make some really big impacts in terms of changing how veterinary medicine looks, not just kind of physically, but how it actually plays out um, in terms of the delivery of care and services in the next 20, 30 years. Absolutely. This entrepreneurial, technological animal, as it were, are are poised to make some very significant changes in the future. I, I totally agree with that. Very exciting. So in closing, where can folks find um, more information on Gen Z? So Gen Z, there are literature everywhere about studies that have been done from Barnes & Noble College all the way through to uh, just everywhere there's, there's different studies. So I would say be like a Gen Zer and hit Google 
you will find tons of information. If you'd like more information specific to veterinary medicine and what we're doing, you can reach out to either of us willing to answer any questions or share presentations or anything we've done in the past. All right, great. Thanks a bunch, Tony, for taking some time to talk about the future of the profession. Appreciate it. I appreciate your having me. All right. Well, that wraps another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Be sure to uh, look for us on Facebook, on our Facebook page, like and certainly subscribe to our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to rate us so that you and your colleagues can find us later. And we will be in your feeds uh, more regularly throughout the fall with some really cool programming. We've got things planned on rural medicine, intersectionality, and all kinds of really cool stuff coming down the pike. So with that, we will wrap this episode. Again, thank you to my colleague, Tony, and we will see you soon. Thank you. Thank you.